You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I love talking to Holly. Boy, that was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it. But you're going to enjoy this, too, because Chris Geidner is back with us. He is the uh, uh, author, publisher of Law Dork. He's a journalist who covers the law. Um if you haven't signed up for his newsletter at Law Dork, you should. It's a really good read. We spoke a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, his focus is on the court. So it's relevant and it's so important that I wanted to get him back with us. And you know what? I'm pretty sure after you hear from him, you're going to want to sign up for that newsletter. Chris, welcome back. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can, can I just start by telling you that your work is so important and it's helped, you know, Americans understand the third branch of government. I think we have clearly not paid it sufficient attention. We erred in assuming like a, you know, like a, uh, uh, I don't know, like an appliance in our house that it was just doing its job as an impartial, independent, non-political actor in our governing system. And, you know, you were raising your hand saying, you know, we should pay a little bit of attention. You and, and others. And, you know, I know you've interviewed Steve Vladek about his book, but I hear completely, you know, I hear people who've never talked about the Supreme Court at all now saying shadow docket, like they know what it's about. But just the fact that it's in the ether, that people are talking about the court, you've helped America see beyond the robes. And I, I just think that's so important. So I want to thank you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I mean, obviously, I I think you're right. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I I think that like there there's just this reality that we we have the, these three branches of government, and for far too long, one of them has believed that they should be treated differently. In effect, <laughs> that. That we we don't need to uh, examine their motives. We don't need to examine their their biases. We don't need to examine why it is that the and then ultimately how they how and whether they should be held accountable. So so Chris, I I, I wonder if you. I mean, I think some of this is due to the fact that the way we think about government in America, partly because of the nature of our democracy, we think about it through elections and we don't elect these judges. So we, so we, so all of the attention, right, is on campaigns. It's rarely about governing after all. It's mostly about campaigns. And so we don't pay attention to governing as much as we should. And so we pay even less attention to governing when we're not electing the people who are doing it. I think that's been a problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can see that in so far as a lot of coverage of even administrative and agency actions is, is less than we get about sort of horse race politics and, what right. candidates are going to Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. Um, we get a ton of coverage about that. We get it. We, we've already got polling about 2024 out there. Um, and, and yet 
we get very little coverage, uh, even of the executive branch, like the federal agency uh, actions outside of like mainly like big things that happen that uh, are out of the Justice Department or big things that are just so significant that they're going to be affecting everyone or a large group of people. And so then they, they sort of hit our radar, but like, how often do you, do you actually hear or, or does anybody know what's going on at the commerce department? What's going on if you're not a farmer at the agriculture department, what's going on at health and human services now that, the majority, the vast majority of their time isn't focused on COVID. What are the other things that they're doing? The, the hey, Chris, let me interrupt you for one second and yeah. ask if you can get cl- either closer to your mic or, or closer to the cell tower because you're cutting in and out a little bit. Oh, sorry. That better? <clears throat> yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, but your, but your point that we don't pay enough attention to the governing part of our government, um, whether it's it commerce or ag, you know, it is really important and even less to the judicial branch. Um, so, but we have, at least we have a dedicated community of lawyers that does pay attention to the judicial branch. And that's, um, I think proven helpful. Can you take us a little bit through the, the gang of nine is now in session. Um, and I don't know whether Americans should worry or not. So would you take a minute and give us a roundup of this term? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got um, we're, we're now in June. So we're going to be sort of finishes. It's uh, handing down its decisions. But this term we got into June and we still had 30 decisions left. Um, and um we had a, a batch of decisions on Thursday, but it was only only three decisions. So that means we're still going to have uh, 27 decisions that uh, the court should be uh, handing down sometime over the the next. I mean, really, the next three or four weeks. And so, I mean, we've already gotten this huge labor case that I have a feeling you'll want to go into more. I do. Um, but in addition to that, we're, we're still waiting on uh, the big affirmative action case that uh, effectively almost certainly is going to end affirmative action, uh, which already has been watered down to race conscious admissions policies, not uh, any, anything near sort of the the quotas that might have uh, been attacked in the past. We've already gone down to this idea that like race can only be one factor in admissions decisions. Um, and the, the odds are the court's going to get rid of that. We have uh, a voting rights act case that could, could do significant damage to what remains of the voting rights act. Um, we have this independent state legislature scheme case that if the court actually rules on it, which there's a chance that won't, but if they do, they could, uh, if uh, a majority chooses to do so, uh, chooses to actually recognize this, could effectively write state Supreme Courts out of 
being able to rule on whether state legislative actions regarding federal elections are permissible. This could could rule out state courts being able to even consider that. Yeah, um, let's take a minute on that got, one after your list. Yeah. I'll come back to that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the, the other big case that I think people are going to be paying attention to is is uh, the Biden administration's student loan guarantee case, yep. uh, student loan uh, uh, cancellation program. Um, and then we have uh, two religion-related, religion-adjacent cases. Um, we have 303 Creative, which is this question of the, the woman who says she wants to make wedding websites but doesn't want to make them for same-sex couples. And then the, uh, the, the case about involves the Postal Service and um, what accommodations must be given to uh, religious adherents under Title VII. And that, depending on how the court court rules, could sort of upend the way that employers have addressed religious accommodations when sought under Title VII for, for decades now. Yeah, and, and, and you didn't mention, but um, one of the big losers already is clean water. I mean, we've already, in addition to this week's case on the National Labor Relations Act, last week we had uh, the big case where the, the majority, just a five-justice majority, decided to take the court, the country, the interpretation of the Clean Water Act further than it's gone since 1977, and by effectively narrowing what wetlands are protected under the Clean Water Act to only those wetlands that actually touch water, uh, which obviously, like, we understand if you have half a brain or have read anything about about water that that the sort of wetlands that might be across a bridge or over a dam or 20 feet away, obviously are going to have an impact on the actual water that's nearby it. But what the court yes, said, pouring chemicals that in that clean in water. That yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, absolutely. The clean water, act, according to this Supreme court says that you can only, uh, those wetlands are only protected if they, they, literally touch, perform, form a continuous surface connection to the, the actual water that's being protected. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a shocking decision. Disgraceful. Yeah. So, so I guess one of the other big losers, it, it continues to be the idea of precedent and stare decisis. This is a radical court that, um, uh, feels it's empowered to make law. I don't know how else to think about it. Yeah, I mean, like, keep in mind, the the big dissent in the Clean Water Act case was written by Justice Kavanaugh. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, he was <clears throat> arguing quite forcefully that, that there is no justification for the way that the majority is, is altering that this, this rule that has been interpreted this way since 1977 across uh, eight presidential administrations, including the, the Republicans that came in that time. So the Reagan administration didn't 
didn't take this extreme of a path as uh, the the justices went, and in fact, the the uh, the, the understanding that was rejected by all nine justices. Um, showing how far we've gone was actually language that was initially advanced by former Chief Justice William Rehnquist in an opinion uh, yeah. back when and we, we clearly had a very different court. How did Justice Gorsuch uh, vote on this? What was his view? I mean, his mother Gorsuch was... Yeah, I mean, he was he was with the the, uh, the five justice majority that has the the much narrower interpretation of the uh, Clean Water Act. For for those of you who have long memories, it proves we were we were right in being concerned about his mother running the EPA. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, he even joined. Um, Justice Gorsuch, in a concurring opinion, that would have gone even further and, in fact, sort of suggested that the the court uh, should, should go even further. He, he literally wrote, Justice Thomas wrote, I write separately to pick up where the court leaves off. Um, and, and Justice Gorsuch joined that opinion that, that sort of went all the way back into to sort of New Deal legislation and sort of talked about what the court has ha- has considered valid regulation of interstate commerce basically since then. And he, he at one point used the word arguably covered. Um, so he, he there, there are two justices and we, we see this a lot. We saw this in the, the labor rights case. There, there are two or three justices and it's, it's almost always uh, some combination of Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, who are already, despite how conservative and reactionary this court is, suggesting what the next step could be. Yeah, the next step is what? The Lochner era. And it's um, something I guess we could talk about another time. It takes a little longer. Um, let's turn to a few sp- specifics. I'm not sure in the time we have left, we can go into too many of these cases, but let's talk about the the labor case. I'm not sure if labor is the big loser or the NLRB and the federal government's ability to do its job. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a little of both. Um, it, it, I mean, the, the, the case which was decided this week was Glacier Northwest versus the Teamsters. And the question that is before that was before the court is this idea of the the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, and the NLRB, the board that enforces it, uh, is given a, a very wide berth. Um, they are the experts at deciding what uh, protected activity from unions. Um, is what protected activity from business management side is and what prohibited activities are in the course of union organizing. And there is a a long, again, we're going to go back to this. There's a long precedent in the court in the way that the the NLRB has enforced this that uh, essentially says that 
if there is a, an argument that something is covered by the NLRA, that courts should stay out of related litigation until the NLRB has a chance to basically decide whether that activity is protected or not. And then if they decide it's not protected, then you could go back to court and bring your case. Um, so this came up in this case of Glacier Northwest, where a bunch of truck drivers went on strike uh, for a concrete mixer plant or a concrete, a, a business that delivered concrete. And they went on strike at the time when they thought it would be most effective after the concrete had already been loaded in the trucks. And they brought their trucks back to the, 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 the workplace and then they went off the job. And the question there was, can a lawsuit from the company go forward because they were taking uh, actions to damage the employer's property? And what the majority said, what eight justices said, was that on this question of whether the lawsuit can go forward based on what was presented by the company when they sued in state court, it can go forward. And there were eight justices on that. Only Justice Jackson dissented. Uh, mm -hmm. When you actually dove into it, it got a little more complicated because while the case was going on, the chief counsel, the general counsel for the NLRB actually issued a complaint in the case. And what Justice Jackson explains is that if the NLRB general counsel issues a complaint in a case under their process within the agency, then obviously courts should like consider the fact that it is arguably covered if the general counsel is issuing in a, a complaint. Yeah, at the end of the day, it might turn out that the board rules differently, but if the standard for courts to be stepping back and letting the NLRB do its job is that it's arguably covered. Jackson said, well, clearly this is a case where it's arguably covered. And so, what Chris, let me just, let me ask said, about this. In, yeah. in, hang on. Let me ask about this in, without going too much further into the facts. This case, like the Clean Water Act case, in some ways like Moore versus Harper, if they get to it, these cases are really about who gets to decide things in America. Who gets to decide? And in every case where the, the court is saying, we get to decide, or, um, or in, in Moore versus Harper, it may be state legislatures as badly gerrymandered as they are. By the way, we have nothing to say about gerrymandering anymore. They get to decide, but, but it's stripping away the powers of the government. Um, to do its job. In, in, well, yeah, I mean, it, in, it's limiting agency power, and we have a huge case that's going to be coming up next term that asks the, the question of, I mean, talk about overturning precedent, this idea of Chevron deference, which basically says if, if a statute empowers the agency to act, 
its interpretation of ambiguous language should be deferred to as long as it's reasonable. And that makes sense. We have a big country. We have a lot of agencies. We have a ton to run. Congress isn't the expert at everything. And oftentimes, they're going to let the agencies who are the experts decide that. And that was uh, a lot of the underlying point of Jackson's defense here is Congress clearly decided repeatedly and has not changed it that we are empowering the NLRB to be the decider of at least in the first instance of what how how labor law should be interpreted and yeah you can go you can appeal it to the courts afterwards and if something goes astray if something is unconstitutional if it's outside of the text of the statute then you can go to court and and get it overturned but in the first instance we are always turning to the nrb and her concern with this ruling is that this is an instance, specifically here with Glacier Northwest, and possibly as this rule is applied, it, which it was a very vague role in Justice Jackson's opinion, which was only for five justices. Again, three justices would have gone further. Again, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. But the point that Jackson was making is that now you're going to have lots of situations across the country where people try to get their lawsuit into state court before the NLRB can even weigh in on the issue. No, I, and I totally get the that. majority the gave them the chance to do that. They did. The implications of legislature of saying that legislatures cannot delegate um, it, uh, at all, on, on really, which is what Chevron's going to do on legislative matters is uh, makes governing almost impossible. Um, it certainly, yeah, it certainly makes it yeah, going to be tough. And, or we'll have to, or we'll have to add about uh, to a hundred thousand more judges, right? Because it means that everything will be handled that way. It's disgraceful. All right. In the time we have left, I have so many other things I want to talk to you about, but can you just bring us up to date on the dispute between the Senate Judiciary Committee and the billionaire Harlan Crow, who, at least to my untrained eyes, bribed Justice Thomas? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's tough. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean. Harlan Crow is effectively saying that he's the Supreme Court, <laughs> that that he he his lawyers in these letters in response to both the Finance Committee and the Judiciary Committee uh, Democrats is that he is protecting the separation of powers by refusing to answer the Senate's question. Now the the <laughs> the 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 absurdity of this is and something I've written about at Lodor is that like even Chief Justice Roberts has said that these claims that Harlan Crow's lawyers are making aren't decided. He has said we've never ruled on this question of whether Congress can restrict us in this way. Um, but at the same time, when he said that, he has said that they they do adhere to them nonetheless. 
even though the court hasn't decided it. And so while the the minuscule number of things, like basically filling out the, the financial disclosure form, um, while, like, Robert says that they have followed congressional laws, and while he says that the Supreme Court has never ruled in on the scope of Congress's power to do so, Harlan Coe's lawyers are writing to Senate committees saying, to the majority in Senate committees, saying, he doesn't need to respond to your questions because you don't have a valid legislative purpose because Congress couldn't pass these sorts of laws. So, in effect, he is saying that he is the Supreme Court. He can make these decisions and decide to just ignore requests from the Senate. It's it's absolutely absurd. And the fact that uh, Dick Durbin hasn't issued uh, a subpoena yet, that they haven't voted on a subpoena out of committee is, I think, very disappointing. And uh, especially now that we're getting into June and Justice Thomas is passing a vote in all of these important cases. I'm not saying that he would be removed immediately, but like you cannot discount the importance of this person being on the court, casting votes, and it being essential that the Senate conduct its oversight duties as as they need to if they have non-cooperative witnesses because of the fact that, as we saw in the EPA case, sometimes even on this six-justice court, he's going to cast the decisive vote. Yeah. Well, I, we've run ourselves out of time, and I have like 80 other questions I want to talk about. So, Chris, we're going to have to do this again if you're if you're up for it. Um, there's no shortage of really important questions going on in our legal system, and um, there is a shortage of general understanding about it, and we need to do uh, – uh, that's why I so appreciate your work. No, thank you so much, Ryan. I'm, I'm glad that you're out there making making the, the arguments every weekend. <laughs> yep, yep. All right, Chris. Thank you so much.